Dubbed The Man Whisperer by Newsweek, Kenny Mamarella de Cruz understands what makes men tick at the deepest and most profound personal level. As he says, people often find him at a crossroads in their lives, lacking adequate tools, community or awareness to deal with it like a man. Kenny came from dramatic beginnings, being told, we're coming to kill you tonight as a seven-year-old in Uganda, as his father was on Idi Amin's death list. Fortunately, Kenny fled just in time. Having travelled the world and worked with the likes of Mother Teresa in Calcutta, he moved to London and became a high-flying adrenaline junkie. Carrying numerous ailments and mental health issues, Kenny realised that for most of his life, he'd been a little boy pretending to be a man. Now, a highly successful personal development consultant, Kenny has designed and created the Men Speak Men's Group, where men from all walks of life can laugh, listen and grow together, becoming their authentic selves. Now over 16 years later, the Men Speak concept is growing fast, changing and saving lives every day. Today, Kenny considers himself a true Londoner. It's where he fits in and where he can do his life's mission. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we'll reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits or have us create your very own London Legacy episode or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too over at www.patreon.com forward slash yourlondonlegacy. Okay, let's get on with the show. So today I'm delighted to be in the company of Kenny D. Cruz. Is it D. Cruz or D. Cruz? These days it's Marmarella D. Cruz because I got married ah. to a nice Italian girl. What do I say? Congratulations, Mazel Tov. What's the... The whole lot, actually. <laughs> the whole lot. Yeah. Or wishing you love forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely perfect. So we're in a, a unique place where I've never been before. I've often thought of joining the Institute of Directors when I set up my business a few years back. I've been tempted once or twice, but I've never actually set foot in the building. It's a big posh place, eh? It's like proper, proper posh. Proper. <laughs> and I, I've walked past here thinking, oh my God, the people that go in there must be so powerful and educated and their suits must be worth more than I, I earn in a year. And here, here I am, ex-refugee, green behind the years, a member of the IOD, knowing the secret cubbyhole that we're in now and i love nooks and crannies in london yeah. that's one of my favorite things we are actually in i don't know what you call it it's almost like um it's like a bunker from it's the like wall. a bunker under the main staircase where you i think you said it would be interesting if churchill actually sort of sat exactly. here once and i know this staircase has been in james bond movies and fashion things and god knows what uh -huh. i i love that about london Parts of London have been so kind of like so known in the world. And now it's the streets that belong to me. That's lovely. And what you said about coming in here, how you dress. I mean, I embarrassingly thought, what should I, is there a dress code to come in today? But uh, no, here we are in our jeans and sort of sweatshirts. And you're, you're smarter than I am. Well, you look great. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. I'm feeling a little bit rough today, folks. So, um, Bear with me. Mm. A little bit of a man flu thing going on here, I think. <laughs> so, Kenny, it's lovely to see you. Um, I'm glad we managed to get this together. Explain to people, first of all, a little bit about what you do, not who you are, because mm. that's a different thing, 
but what what you do because I know you you, you have a very special yeah. thing to help you know, men in particular. That's very much a coming back to London story as well. Mm. I left London in '93, and I expected to not come back. Um, I was emigrating to Fiji, and I kind of this might sound a bit spiritually or woo woo or whatever. But when I left, it was wherever I need to be and whatever I need to do. So I had this thing where a friend who worked for the government said, come over, we could do with your help, work, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, okay, let's see where life takes me. So cut a long story short, I moved to Fiji. I lived in Australia. I worked in Calcutta with Mother Teresa and some dying people. Got slightly kidnapped in Delhi. Bit of bungee jumping in New Zealand. How did you get slightly kidnapped? I can't (laughs) let you get away with that one. (laughs) It was really weird. I did a 24-hour train trip. Um, and I'd just come back from Singapore, so I had all these electronic things, you know, the latest gadgets and phones and whatever. And I thought, I need to do this train trip, and I don't know how to make sure that my things don't get stolen and I don't get beaten up. So, you know, I had insurance and all that, and I just thought, bells. Surely, if I can buy bells, and in India, there must be dancing girl angle bells, or there must be bells. So I got lots of bells. I tied them all on my things. And I thought, I'm not going to eat, and I'm not going to drink, because if I go to the loo, I may never come back, and they might steal all my things. So I was starving, lacking sleep, and in this strange, it's not like another country, it's like another planet, ended up in the middle of the night in Delhi, and I paid for my hotel, and I paid for everything. And just before the rickshaw set off, some slightly poshish looking guy in a tank top and a side parting showed up on the rickshaw, had a word with my driver, went into the office, and I saw him take my papers and rip them up, take some money, jump next to me, and tell the rickshaw driver where to take us. And I, I was high as a kite. I hadn't eaten, I hadn't slept, and I ended up in a hotel far away from everything. They made me sign in and sign out, and then they put me in a room. And I wondered what was going on, because I wasn't beaten. Um, I had my passport. I wouldn't let them take it. And it was a fine line of how much to stand up for myself and how much not. And again, you know, I hadn't eaten or anything. I stayed up, and I waited, and I waited. And as soon as I heard some American voices, because there were no Western voices, I grabbed my stuff, and I just bolted I ran it was really really weird later on I found out that a scam that they do is because I have a British passport and because I'm uh what do you call me South Indian or I'm, I'm from Goa my family's from Goa so with my color and the British passport they do things like get the police in and lock me up saying I haven't paid my bills and I've done this and that so then there are those briberies. Ah, right. And then the passport goes and that gets sold. So then, you know, there's that scam. And so it goes on. And I wasn't sure which one they wanted to do. I didn't really know about this. I was quite naive. How old were you at the time? I would have been early 30s, mm-hmm. maybe. So I was a bit older as a traveller. But I left the UK because all my dreams came true. I had you know, the perfect circle of friends. I had a marketing and publicity company with all the clients that I wanted. And it's like, I've done it. And now it's time to settle, marry my girlfriend and be a big fat cat who doesn't exercise a lot, but has lots of money. And I just thought, 
the sunshine's missing. So weirdly, my grandmother died and my family decided to go abroad um, for Christmas rather than be here and grieve a bit more. Came back, so I was living in Viner Street and I was the only resident in Viner Street. Viner Street's in Bethnal Green and it used to be quite rough and it used to be factories. I remember when suddenly there would be um, people from all sorts of third world countries running down the street, not wanting to be caught by, I don't know, immigration or whatever. Uh, and I was the only resident. I'm, I was the only person that lived on that cobble street on the canal in Bethnal Green. And my God, it was magnificent. And before me was the drummer from, oh my God, Radiohead. So it was a huge, huge warehouse space. Now it's a very, very trendy dead yeah. arty roads been gentrified now totally yeah totally those days i would get really angry if i heard a car go down my street because it was dead uh, and so this would have been late 80s early 90s so i just thought no it's time to go came back to viner street after my break away with my family thinking i need to leave i've got everything apart from the sunshine and before I when you say the sunshine, you mean the actual sunshine, the sun, not the, yeah, the yeah, actual you mean the sunshine. warmth of the sun, right? Okay. Exactly. That was. The I wasn't sure thing. if it being metaphorical or, or you know, actual. No, no. This is I. Everything else was there, but I grieved the sun. Uh -huh. I've grieved the sun since I moved to the UK as a refugee, right? And it has caused me a lot of depression, uh, and I just thought it would be normal to settle and have this life that everyone else sees as ideal. But I just thought. I need to check out my options. I need to really know that I'm doing the right thing. So I came back and I was burgled. And I just thought, it's a sign. Two days later, my friend phoned from Fiji yet again saying, come over. And for years she's phoned and I've said, no, I'm busy. I've got stuff to do. And I said, yes. And that was the beginning of the rest of my life, where it really was wherever I need to be and whatever I need to do. And it has been the most ridiculously amazing life, bigger than, than my control, bigger than my fantasies, and bigger than I could have really expected, not just for my health and joy, but passing things on. So I came back in 98 uh, because I got involved with the movie and I thought, okay, two years. I need to see the people I love because the people I love are in London and in the UK. And I need to look them in the eye and say, I love you and I love the sunshine and I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and when I came back and I saw, especially my male friends, it really saddened me because they'd lost it. They got distracted by fame and fortune, money, sex. Love, sex addiction, love addiction, drug addiction, alcoholism, you know, all the razzmatazz. This was through the 80 period of the 80s, was it, or a bit later This was, uh, I left in 93. Oh, 93. And I came back in 98. Uh -huh. And they were all, yeah. And I guess I'd been doing, you know, Mother Teresa and, you know, adventures around the world. I got to know who I am by needing to unlearn who I thought I should be to meet the other cultures and take part. So... I just got sick of it. And one day I got, it must have been at a nice place in Muswell Hill. And I got 
between 12 and 18, I think it was about 16 of my closest male friends and some new blokes who I met in a room. And I said, I don't know what a men's group is, but I'm starting one because sure, I'll come raving and sure, I'll come, you know, doing whatever it is, the shenanigans. And I need to meet you at some depth. I need to be met at depth. I'm not going to be what distracted. What did they think things. of you? They thought I was a weirdo, but they were used to me being a weirdo. Right. I've always been a little bit freaky little bit on the outside. Exactly. Yeah. And before leaving, I remember I had a huge party in my warehouse in Viner Street. And a lot of my friends or groups of friends met for the first time. And that was the first time I realized that the upper class went to the top left, the middle class somewhere in the middle, and the lower class didn't quite feel that they were entitled to be in the room. Meanwhile, I didn't even notice there were different classes. I was just, they were people that I loved. So yeah, it was huge for me, huge to get a load of guys together. And that's it. I'm a misfit. I'm a refugee from Uganda. Um, I look like I'm Indian, but my culture is Portuguese and I was brought up Catholic. So I'm a misfit left, right and centre, really. Mm. Well, you fit perfectly in London. Then. I do. Exactly. Yeah. That's this why I call myself home. a Londoner. <laughs> I am so a Londoner. So that was that was actually... 20 years ago and it's 2020 now and it's the 20th anniversary of running men's groups and i run most of my men's groups in a small castle canal side in camden town called the pirate castle which i know well it's magnificent because my daughter had her 16th birthday party there how long ago uh um, i would say uh which what is she now she's 25 now so there you go wow yeah amazing place it's yeah. changed a lot of life so many people say my kids used to come here so pirate castle camden town which is where i see private clients i work with men going through change for some reason mainly rich famous trustafarians um etonians harovians public trustafarian it was a trustafarian trustafarians are people who were brought up your know, trust funds Right. Um, and mainly okay. living in West Some show my class. I don't know that term. <laughs> <laughs> what a giveaway. <laughs> but they, I, I do attract the loveliest people who uh -huh. might come from opulence, but they're the ones who either have a heart that they haven't really known where to put or how to manage, or they want their heart back to be connected with themselves and other people and do some good belong in the world. And mm. sadly, there are so many men who kind of, dedicate their lives to having everything and they do cross it off the list you know money the wife and kids and the business and whatever it is and then they realize that they are nothing it hasn't fixed anything and they lack passion mm. or they lack purpose or they lack personal power or that they're still surviving from boarding school or whatever it was that happened so it's almost like they say when the seeker is ready, the castle will appear. You, you mm. must know, what is it, the Knights of the Round Table? Yes. <laughs> the Holy Grail, yes. Monty Python. Yes. And, you know, this, this goes back to so many legends. But what I kind of realize is when someone is ready and says, right, now I need to step into my life and find out who I am and why I'm here, then same as we, when it was wherever I need to be, whatever I need to do, then life can meet me. I'm interested in this class thing. Yeah. You say you've got a lot of sort of well-to-do, well-heeled clients yeah. who have you know money and cars and you know beautiful women and all that sort of thing and wonderful holidays, but they're clearly not fulfilled. They, have, they believe or think they should have a, a 
deeper purpose. On the other hand, I'm guessing you have clients from middle and lower work, you know, working classes, shall we say, from not, yeah. not privileged backgrounds, let's put it that yeah, way. totally. Who totally. aspire to have what the wealthy people have got yeah. and think that that'll fulfill them. So there's this sort of dichotomy, isn't there, going on here? And I feel so <laughs> privileged to be around these people and know that it doesn't buy peace or love or harmony or any goodness whatsoever. And the more working class get to meet the aristocracy, some of them, who might not even realize who each other is because it's not about class, it's not about anything apart from what do we have in common when we're sitting in a men's group? What can we learn from each other? And people get to see, people get to learn from each other's experiences without telling each other what to do, without the hierarchies or anything about who's got the biggest muscles or wallet or anything else. And we just get to hang out. And this is thanks to my friends being distracted and me saying, I need to be met with depth. I need to tell the truth. I need to share my journey. I need to be me rather than doing a cheap act that even I don't buy for whoever these people are and what they think. No, that's nonsense. I don't get, I don't buy it. I really don't buy it. So how does one, how do you find out who you are? How do you, how do you go through a process of, of with your clients in a one-to-one -one or in a group setting to find out who someone truly is underneath all the various layers that have been foisted upon them? I found, you know, after all the years of travel, and um, I used to be a mummy's boy. I had lots of mental health issues that were mainly about harmlessness and stress-related post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was all about, am I? Am I going to be found out? Am I in trouble? How do I manipulate love, safety, etc.? And I realized I need to turn that around. And rather than finding out who I am, it's more letting go of who I no longer need to be or letting go of who or what is simply not true. But so, did you come to that realisation yourself? Or I did, worked it out. Or did you have a mentor or somebody you looked up to, I don't know, like a Tony Robbins character? I wish. <laughs> well, when I say a mentor, I don't mean a one-to-one -one mentor with Tony Robbins. That, yeah. you, you went to Fiji. I mean, he lives yeah. in Fiji most of his most of the year. Yeah, I think I was there first, but that's not a story. <laughs> <laughs> so he's following in your footsteps. Well, yeah. Well, you might... I, same with the mental health stuff. It's like I used to twitch. I used to grunt. I used to be a basket case in lots and lots of ways. I had east eating issues and eating disorders. I had the lot. And I needed to unlearn it. Well, I'm always fascinated how somebody like you with I think you said you had sort of post-traumatic stress you had asperges you've got you know compulsive disorders all these sort of things going on and weird relationships with your father and your mother how does somebody not you specifically but somebody like you make a decision that I don't want to be that person anymore as opposed to somebody who can't break out out of that cycle they, they don't realize yeah. there's an option for them maybe I am lucky because I'm a misfit and as a misfit, I didn't have a certain class or culture to kind of betray or go against. I had lots of cultures, including Catholicism, uh, to unlearn. But I have never really... I've, I've, I'm a misfit. I'm very lucky. And I would say even the most, especially with, say, some of the old families, uh, huge business families or landowning families or whatever, 
they have such strong structures about what goes and what doesn't go. But the people that I attract, they need more. They need more than the box, irrespective of whether the box has got spikes in or it's, it's lined with gold. They need more. They need to exist in their lives. They need connection. They need love. They need passion. They need purpose. And I think because people get to see me in the media in whatever way and where I'm coming from and where I have come from, they think, well, if he can do it, then I can do it. And if he can do it, then he can show me how to do it because he's not going to be some expert telling me what to do without actually having trod that path. And it's, um, it's the greatest, greatest, greatest gift. And I always find that when I know a person's story, and I do generally work with men, but I work with women as well. When I know a man's story, then it's the pain, the trauma, the places of a broken spirit, the places that have really been defining moments. It's meeting him in those places that releases them. It's not talking about them. It's not shaming them or blaming them. It's naming them, disempowering them, and then in unlearning them, because they are not going on now unless they are brought into the present even in the mind or played out with, with relationships that kind of repeat the pattern. As soon as they know them and they unlearn them, they pick up their tools for their pathway. They get to know why I'm here. It's, shall, I, shall I tell you a quick cosmic story? This yeah, is really please go around. ahead. Yeah. So I made up, and like I say, I've made all of this up to, to save, to get me out of the basket. <laughs> <laughs> I made up this story where I kind of thought, if before coming down to the planet this time, I thought, what shall I commit to learning, unlearning, contributing, and completing with people that I might have caused harm, you know, you might call it karma, uh, caused harm to, or that I wish to cause goodness with. If I commit to those things, and then I come down onto the planet, but I can only bring a certain amount of my awareness. If I bring all of my awareness, then I won't gain the experience that I need to gain. And it's gaining experiences that will show me who I am, that, that will enable me to pass this, these things on, cause pain and put things together, have pain caused and get over it. That's the journey. So if I come down and I, I want these things, then how could I possibly make sure that I don't get distracted and I remind myself? And I thought, well, maybe that's how I can agree to certain dramas and certain so-called bad things that happen. And those Bad things can be the, the markers that I can't ignore. And as I go back and start to unlearn them, then I do have the connection with these people and be complete with the pain that we've been through. We do get the um, gifts that I need to learn that I can then pass on as part of my purpose. And it kind of crosses everything off my list. So it's all about these are the clues that I've left myself, call it pain, that I can't ignore, that I go back to, and then I can fulfill my purpose here. That's not to say that everyone has to save the world, because some people might be on a rest life. My purpose this lifetime, because last lifetime I was Mother Teresa or whoever, this lifetime my purpose is to be a lard ass. Can you imagine just to have a rest life or to have a I will be taken care of life? 
rather than I, I will, which is just another experience. And I know that to, to jump into love, I used to, as a, a carer, as a very um, young boy, so my father was left in Uganda. We were on the death list. So, Just we, just touch on that story because that's a fascinating story and obviously plays a, a huge I mean, you talk about pain, pain points yeah. in your life. That's yeah. a massive pain point as a young kid, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, life was bliss. We had it made in Africa. It was absolutely wonderful. My mother used to run the Catholic bookshop that would supply all the colleges and universities and obviously the churches. And she had, we had, I had the best toys in Uganda. <laughs> my father used to run different bureaus for the U uganda post office different departments and when the holiday i mean thing kicked off he was running the parcel department so we got in trouble we're guessing because he used to help people who were in trouble who were on the death list he smuggled the manuscript i don't remember the name of the book i think it was a dennis hill book out uh, there were a lot of people who were beaten uh, near death and he kind of put a stop to it this is in the parcel department the soldiers were given drugs and not a lot of money and all the power to rape and pillage and do whatever they want so we just kept getting higher and higher on the death the death list um and we were you aware of that i mean yeah, not necessarily because, you because you were i don't know what seven eight years oh, old. i was totally aware i knew what you was were aware going on. yeah yeah my um father had a friend from school who was i think in the secret service and at the end he said look your name's high on the death list i don't know you we can't communicate anymore i've never met you that's the end get out get your family out then we had a phone call in the middle of the night saying we're going to come and kill you tonight so that night we went into hiding um and stayed at my aunt's so, uncle's house who was that from someone in the uh you know the armed forces friend, who, who knows supporting the amin regime presumably who knows or his death squads well i think how decent of them to tip us off <laughs> it's like the ira we've planted a bomb we've got 10 minutes to get out yeah yeah but it could have been his friend yeah but whoever it was so you think it was a genuine call it was a den well, well he took it as a joke and laughed it off this um, is your father my father uh and then they phoned back and said we're not joking and we were in shock we went cold before this our phones were tapped we were followed you know there were all sorts of i remember being in one car with my parents and my aunt and uncle in another car with my toy walkie talkies dis deciding whether to turn left or right because we heard gunfire over there there might be an ambush over there which is the safest way to get from a to b alive so it was heavy going and um, you know we had servants and they were very close to us in that they took off looked after us we looked after them and we were kind of brought up together i mean they didn't come to my school or anything like that but it was there was care and they risked their lives running to tell us when they knew that we were in trouble and something was going to happen so we risked our lives for each other and it's the same with us for them there are times you know this is off the london story yeah I know, no but it's all but part they of it were because hairy times yeah very hairy times. so you had to you escaped out of uganda i think yeah. your father had to stay behind for a while my father he? stayed went behind. into hiding exactly yeah. well we were all in hiding yeah. 
Um, and he, we had British passports and it was safe for us to come out. So my mother, brother and I ended up in refugee camps in Eccleshall in Staffordshire. And my father was left there. And the plan was, I was seven, the plan was that he would go to Kenya where he was born and we would meet him there and carry on there. Meanwhile, he was, I think it was the... United Nations or the Red Cross. I, don't, I think the Red Cross put, put us together. They said, right, we've got your papers. Let everyone know that you're catching this plane to Kenya. Then they'll go there to pick you up. Meanwhile, we'll take you somewhere else. The next thing we know, we're in refugee camp and we get a phone call of my father saying I'm in Italy. And it's like, what? Now what? So it was messy. And we didn't see him, I think it was, it was a good few months after, maybe nine months. And we'd all changed by then for various reasons. We'd all changed. From I remember him saying to me, you may not see me again, and you're the head of the family now. Wow. So At the age of eight? That was seven. Seven. Yeah. So it, I was response. on duty. But I was, I was a scary a misfit for child anyway yeah, but was that scary for you or did you sort of accept there was that no space for that yeah it was just do it get on with it yeah exactly there i think and i think this is the thing with ptsd and a lot of mental health issues and same with the work that i do is people survive and they build on the survival yeah and is that missing a childhood as well do you think i had mine in my late 30s after my adolescence in my mid-30s. Yeah. <laughs> when you went traveling. Yeah. Well, it was after that. It was after coming back. And I kind of, you know, everyone saw me as a respectable, good man. Um, and pretty much everything about me was doing good. But I didn't exist in it. And I needed to be safe enough to go through my own adolescence and childhood before I could be my own man. And I guess that's what I pass on to other men, is where are you stuck? So you were acting out a role yeah. rather than being... being my my whole life was little boy pretending to be a man, making sure that people are okay, especially women. Um, so with everything I've been through, I, I get it. I really get it. With the men that I work with, across the board, across the classes and the cultures, I get it. And my God, I love the work I do. And if it wasn't for my fuck-ups or the way that life handed me a very interesting uh, deal, it's like I wouldn't be doing this. Totally, totally, totally grateful for it. And I can say that now I'm at the other end. There and then, suicidal at times, Especially as a child, I remember thinking, well, if I was dead, then there'd be one less mouth to feed and they might have a better chance. So even for that thought to go through your mind at that age is just a, a horrific prospect. Yeah. It's yeah. just shocking. Yeah. And these days I can milk it. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. But do you know what? That was just my normality. Yeah. Simple as that. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. Well, you can laugh about it, obviously, doing the great work that you do. It is a serious point, and men's suicide, I don't know what the rate is, but it's 
It's massive, isn't it's it? It's one a minute in the world. One a minute in the world. And in the UK alone, I don't know, there's it's, like eight a day or something. Yeah, it's something absolutely. ridiculous. And I work with, in the last year, I've worked with more suicidal men in than my whole career. Seriously. It's so what is it? Huge. Why is there a spike suddenly, or not suddenly, why is it why is coming to the position today where men, well-heeled, well-educated, are now thinking to themselves, I'm not worthy to be on this planet nobody's going to miss me i'm not sure it's the not worthy i think it's one that i worked with yesterday um very 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 privileged background he just wants the pain to stop and what what, what is the pain for him for him the emotional pain yeah the mental pain and emotions go into the head very often and that's where but what's in, causing the emotional pain what, what's, um, what's the for truth? him it was um and there's he, he can't be traced by this mm. but i can tell you it was sex abuse by his mother initially yeah. boarding school issues and then wanting to be harmless and feeling that he's creating harm being very very much a misfit but the broken spirit from the initial abuse and the way that that rewires and messes up with his or broke his spirit, his sexuality, his uh, confusion. His father wasn't around. He had um, he was a very very high profile person, uh, the father, um, and the way that it messed with his head, with his heart, the way that sexuality was a currency, the way that. He had so much rage that was internalized and nothing could be expressed and he had to put on a good face. There's no space for him to exist in all of this. Is that part of, oh, you know, man up, be a bloke, get over it and just This crack, whole crack man on. up stuff is such absolute bollocks. I mean, and who says man up? It's boys. Where for me, the difference between a man and a boy is a man includes the feminine side which is listening responding receiving rather than competing and reacting and surviving it's not about competition men can collaborate there's not that much to prove when you're a man it's like self-acceptance and get on with it rather than what do people think put on a good show uh, break the others and show everyone just how dominant time or whatever no this whole man up thing i mean i've i've hijacked that and i've changed it to man up and talk about it because talking about it has not just saved lives it saved another thing that i've worked with that is quite horrible but probably amongst the most important work i've done is when men want to abuse other people and sometimes it's sex abuse with children. And for me, it, it, the first time that came up, it's like, oh my God, how do I deal with this? I want to run away. This is disgusting, blah, blah, blah. And then I stopped and I thought, I don't want to be part of this going underground and being perpetuated. I need to sit with this. I need to sit with this bloke and I, I need to get it so he doesn't play it out. And he's come to me because he doesn't want to play it out. He's come to me because he doesn't know how to manage this and the impulse is so strong and he's got nowhere to go. So I have worked with a half a dozen men um, who've wanted to do this as a strange way to, to, to put it, but this has been around. Maybe they've come to me because they don't want to do it, mm, but, but there's something going somehow. on. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a part of every person that can take over them 
take them over with rage or with whatever it is that plays out. And one of the things that I do with men is I speak to the different parts and these parts are holding information and insights that can change their life. I mean, a lot of people come in because maybe they're scared of women and they want to get dating. And in front of a woman, they turn into a little boy. And I can so quickly and easily get them to know the man in them and how to be present and attract the right woman or the right business partner or be a good father or be good at work or whatever it is. It's just a different part. And whatever it is that's damaged their psyche or confused them about who they are or how to be, we kind of we deal with that relatively quickly. Did you have to strip away all that stuff? Myself. Do you have to strip there for them? Do you have to get them to strip it away to get to the bit, either the feminine side or the you know the positive side? Or I've learned to do it very very quickly. Yeah, because I've made all you know after being relatively well off in Africa, it was poverty in Wales. Um, we had nothing, so I needed to work things out in order to survive and take care of my family and and you know do my thing. But how quickly do you get your clients to to get to that realization that this isn't them? There's other stuff underneath. Usually with most of my sessions are two hours long usually within a couple of hours they know what's what and they have tools that they can start to turn things around with it you know the strange thing is the more privileged the more work it takes to unlearn very strangely the less privileged the quicker they turn things around and most of the working class guys they do their work in in a group and they don't even want or need private sessions, or they might just need one. Wait, why do you think that is? is that I because have of, no is that reasons of etiquette, and they think resilience. Got to, yeah, I'm guessing it's resilience and choice. The more choice, the more depression I find because they just don't know what the right choice is or what to do, or and and so it goes on. But so much of it is down to their backgrounds, their wiring, their programming, what's expected, and it leaves no space for them. And they have to build. I've, I've had quite a few men who've, during the work, remembered what happened to them and why they take this perspective on life and keep repeating something that they don't want to, to keep happening. But in a session, they're safe, it's held, we get it, and we turn it around. We don't go looking for trouble. <laughs> we start from a good place and we see what's between now and this good place and we let those things show up and we clear them away. It can be very, very efficient. And I, I had to make this up to save my own life. You know, I've never really had the time or the money to go into, I don't know, psychotherapy training or anything. Though I do see I've got a, a therapist in Mayfair. Um, so every two weeks I debrief, they call it supervision. I debrief what's going on with my clients or anything I need to know. It's totally confidential. But this is it. It's like from working class Welsh boy to I debrief with my therapist in Mayfair and we're hanging out in the bunker at the Institute of Directors. It's like, and you know, one of my, my favorite things that I accidentally did in London was I launched the first video wall in nightclubs and the biggest video wall in the world at the Hippodrome. Okay. With, uh, it wasn't my idea, yeah. I'm not technical, but with a guy who I worked with using, what's his name, Stringfellow's Stringfellow, office. Stringfellow, yeah. He was at the party, he loved what we were doing, 
And it was all fluke after fluke after fluke. And um, of all things to be doing that, I, I worked for the local newspaper in Wales and, you know, all the press and media were here. We had a star bar at the Hippodrome where the champagne was flowing for free. And the Welsh journalists absolutely loved it because as far as they're concerned, I'm one of their boys. Yeah. Like, how cool is that to be accepted by so many cultures? And the weird thing is, and this is the flukes of London, is um, this guy had an office uh, that was his mother's office and his mother used to manage... Who came after Legs & Co., the raunchy ones? Oh. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, go on, carry on. It'll come to me. Yeah, so he used to manage that. <laughs> on or, top of the pops. Or maybe it was Legs & Co., I don't remember. I think Pan's People? No, that no. was before. Was that before? Yeah. I'm showing my age now. It's but terrible. it was one of those. So the <laughs> yeah. mother used to, to manage them, and it, it was above the post office in Camden. The post office is no longer there. It's on the, on the corner at Parkway. And I was organizing all my, you know, which, which are the acts? Who could I get to go on, on the, the stage for free so we can have them on the video wall and sell these video walls in nightclubs, blah, blah, blah. And um, by then, I'd already done a lot of uh, world tours with people like James Brown, Alison Moyer, Royal Russian Ballet, Nina Simone, blah, blah, blah. Oh, fabulous. And we'd do all the merchandising from my bedroom in West Hampstead because we couldn't afford premises. So I had my um, best friend and I who were flatmates and we had this design business and no one knew that we were making these t-shirts and tour brochures from Priory Road in West Hampstead. So I contacted a woman called Ruth Rogers Wright who we were promoting and she's the ex-wife of uh, Joe Jackson. And I was waiting from a phone, no, for her manager to show up at the office so we could book her for free to come and do this gig. And he was late. So I picked up the phone just to make a call. And there was a cross line. There were a couple of women just chatting. And I thought, oi, oi. So obviously, I covered the, the, the speaker, listened to the conversation. <laughs> and go on, who was it? <laughs> no idea who they were, but they sounded like right hotties. And then one said something so rude and funny to the other, I don't remember what. And I just burst out laughing. And then the three of us got chatting. And it just so happened that so I had a meeting with the guy who, with the video wall at what used to be the Town and Country Club in Kentish Town after a big show. So it just so happened, they say, that they were going to the same oh, show. Surely not. <laughs> so we arranged, it gets worse, we arranged to meet them at a certain time, at a certain place, but we were late because this guy was very late, but we still went there. Please don't tell me you ended up marrying one of them. <laughs> Close. <laughs> so they could have been anyone. Yeah. We could have been anyone. But somehow one of them decided it was us two, threw her keys at my feet, and I said, well, that's a cheap pickup line. Who are you then? And we got chatting, yeah. and it was them. How did you twig? Just sort of through. I don't know how she did it. But she decided maybe we were looking and they were looking. I don't know. But from that, the guy had a short relationship, shall we say, yeah. with one of them. Okay. And the other one became quite a close friend and then introduced me to a guy called Mike Portelli, who was then the number one un underwater film director who used to do kind of spiritual personal development workshops based on A Course in Miracles. Nice Catholic boy like me, but all the Course in Miracles teachers are 
Jewish. And it was a real turning point in my life, but more than anything in my work. And it's fluke after fluke That's after outrageous. fluke after fluke. But this is London for me. But I they, have met yeah. so many people. Like another one, for example, is I moved to London to launch Loot. Do you know, do you remember Loot? I remember them at the newspaper. Loot. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it was the first ever paper in the UK where advertising's for free. And I used to put on star-studded uh, parties for them, you know. And I didn't know it was smart or clever. I was just a Welsh boy thinking, well, let's do that then. And I'd make a few phone calls and whatever. And um, I was living in Finsbury Park, actually, with Kimmy Wong, who's Richard O'Brien's ex-wife. And Richard O'Brien was the, the Rocky Horror Rocky Show. Rocky Horror guy. Show writer, yeah. And I would go Finsbury Park to Liverpool Street to Ipswich to get the artwork and everything of Luke together before it gets its printing slot, before Melody Maker and after the Cart magazine. And we couldn't miss our slot, otherwise there'd be no paper. So there I was minding my own business. And then we have, what was it? I think there were about four different girls. I, I was in my 20s, mid-20s. They were in their early 20s, maybe younger. And they, they were all, I didn't realize, they were all drama students, Central School of Speech and Drama. So they start dramatizing and putting on these acts and, you know, tube. And I just thought, I can't be bothered. I'm not going to be suckered into this. Totally ignored them. Obviously, they picked on me. So on the way out, I just thought, you look like fun, actually. Circled my private number on the back of loot, gave it to them, and they ended up being amongst my closest groups of friends. And to get loot popular, I made up loads of different characters, like Samantha Fox lookalike, Linda Lasardi lookalike, Guitar Man, blah, blah, loads of different characters. I was all of them. <laughs> and I had them having relationships with each other and people were so intrigued who are these people they were dying to meet them so I put on a big party at the production village in Cricklewood oh wow do, do, I, do I remember that well, it used to be our hangout place yeah <laughs> when was, I was a student it was amazing yeah. so I just thought oh, my flats, God. I think. <laughs> and I had a few I had Odyssey who were friends of mine I once helped them find a house in Halston the group Odyssey the, yeah the group Odyssey kicking so, off your boots exactly <laughs> Exactly. So I used to hang out with them and they didn't do the Hippodrome thing. I think I knew them later, but they came along and I always had a car or two. If I did stuff with famous people in case there's a mob and they need to be rushed off. But the people who bought tickets were dying to meet all of my characters. And when I realized that, straight to the drama students, briefed them, and they played all the roles, and we got away with it. So the drama students were pretending to be, to these be all these characters that I made up. And I met them as a fluke on the underground. And this is why, I mean, for me, the key to life is to be present and connected, to notice what life brings and to be able to respond to it. Because these are opportunities, aren't exactly. they? And it depends what you do with these opportunities. Some people, it's like the old five pound note on the floor. Do you walk past it and just, have, you know, carry on or do you bend down and pick it up? Yeah. And, you know, smile and think you're going to have a good day. It's taking, it, it's making something of the opportunity and accepting that that is something positive in your life. Yeah, exactly. And, and on a very dark note, two things that cross my mind that, that I don't think I've ever told anyone publicly is um, when I lived in Viner Street, you know, I, I look around, I was brought up in this country amongst white people um, and my culture is, I guess, Portuguese, European, Catholic. And I remember leaving my, this was in the late, early 90s, maybe late 80s, leaving my warehouse 
of on, on Viner Street, just going for a walk and at the, the bottom of Hackney Road. And I didn't even notice that there was no one around. Bot- bottom of Hackney Road. And I look across and there's a van. Fine. Someone comes out of a van and it's a skinhead. And in the van, it's full of skinheads. And this is when there were riots on Brick Lane. And it was very well known. If you want to make 20 quid, then go to the riots. The media will give you something. And then, you know, have a little fight or something. Let let them have their footage. And that's the way it works. But there was a lot of violence. So this guy with his baseball bat makes eye contact with me. And I look him in the eye. And it took a little while to figure out what exactly is going on. And then suddenly cold with shock and without thinking i slowly turned around and i walked away and he slowly turned around and we just left it it was a really really i should have yet again i should have died or at least got a club around the back of the head yeah so what do you think in that moment of quiet when you face to face eye to eye with him you think you sort of said something to him Non non verbal. I have no idea. Picked up on. I really like, have. What you're no doing, idea. mate? What do you think you're playing at? I don't know. I don't believe that there are bad people. There are a lot of people in pain and a lot of people in confusion. And there's a saying: hurt people, hurt people. And I wonder. And I know with the the race stuff that I've had is it's those who feel really shit about themselves who need someone to be worse than them. And I don't know what was going on, but I guess I live life thinking I'm invincible. Why would anyone want to harm me? It doesn't compute. Because mm, most rational people, I think, would have just gotten their heels and run as fast as they could. I, I, for some reason, I couldn't do it. It didn't even cross my mind. Maybe I was just in shock. Or maybe we were both wrapped in bubbles of love for a split second. <laughs> but another strange one was I was with one of my very very posh friends i think at that stage he was the brand manager for mars or something and people would come and stay with me in my warehouse i mean we'd have the best parties it was space it was wonderful and it was we were going we were changing trains at baker street on the platform and suddenly you know we were just chatting suddenly we looked up and it was just skinheads and Imagine the echo when they started doing the salute, seek Heil, and it was echoing through the tunnels. And there was him and me and them. Everyone else was white. And I, I don't remember what happened next. I don't remember if we got on the tube or we left or what happened. But it's moments like that. And I bet that these days people cannot imagine what that was like. And that's five minutes ago. That's not that long ago so my god london has given me good bad and ugly and i know for a fact that this is the place in the world where i'm fucked with the most and i learn the most and i can really contribute the most and my wish is to pass on everything that i have to make the world and london a more loving place a place where people meet i mean 20 years ago, there were a dozen of us. Now I run a a dozen groups a month and I train people to run groups and the people who I train run groups and it's going online and it's becoming a charity and people are living more connected, loving lives. People are abusing less and loving more. 
people who really should be dead are not just alive, but they are so alive that they're passing it on from their being. It's magnificent. I just love your analogy on London. You, you say, I, can't, I couldn't repeat it, but I think, I think it's wonderful. <laughs> just as well, we have an expletive uh, version. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Before we wrap up, because I know we're mindful of time, you've got another meeting to go to, just touch on this concept of men's groups. Because yeah. men are always accused of, they're not feeling well, of just sweeping it under the carpet, whether that's a physical ailment, not going to the doctor, or mm. worse, God forbid, a, a mental yeah. health issue. So one-on-one -on -one must be difficult enough to go and speak to somebody about your problems. Yeah. But in a group setting, how the hell do you get men to come in a – because they sit in a circle. I don't know what it is, eight or yeah. nine people, men yeah. in a circle from all different walks of life. Yeah. And you get them to talk openly about their their issues and their concerns. How does that yeah. happen? So if you go to mensgroups.co.uk, there are the ground rules, the check-in rounds, and a few videos – and people can just do it themselves. I, I've checked it out, and I know you have, I think, 12 questions, or yeah, your, I don't know what it. round you call that. Your, yeah, um, the check-in round. The check-in round. Yeah. And some of the questions there make make what little hair I've got sort of fall out. My, <laughs> and, my, I, and my toes curl. <laughs> you know, some of them are just absolutely the lot, bizarre. Am I allowed to say the E word? You're allowed to say exactly what you want. So um, Newsweek uh, did a, they wrote a chapter in the book about me, and that's where the man whisperer came from. And it was all based about, why is he asking about the last time I ejaculated? Mm. And the questions, well, do you know, that question, brings up issues around aging, relationships, porn addiction, sex and sexuality, anything to do with love and relation. You know, it's a can of worms. It could be emotional, mental, physical health. It could be anything. And it could be the pound of flesh because a lot of blokes will go into the room thinking, this is, I'm, 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 something's going to happen. I, I'm going to be humiliated. Mm -hmm. Go on then. And they get their, their pound of flesh off shock and then they get over it. And the most important ground rule, apart from confidentiality that I tell everyone, is pass. You can say pass. There is no pressure. But in no time, people just feel on the same side. They come into the room thinking, what's wrong with me and how do I do me better? And they leave the room feeling relieved feeling sane and wanting more but not of us of themselves and knowing that they can take part in a life that actually includes them in their lives it has so changed lives mm. well the testimonials i mean i looked at some of the videos are, are just mind-blowing yeah and what a, what a variety of people you'd never know i'm so so proud can we end on the kiki d story i'll be very very quick please end on the kiki d story <laughs> we all love a kiki d story i was in love with kiki d since 1976 and i remember when my parents used to go shopping when i was a kid in wales and i had all these issues and all my whatever i'd listen to a tape that i had of her and i would pace up and down the room and for some reason it would calm me i can say that kiki d saved my life and 1983 i was still in school and i wrote to studio b b15 saying why don't you get her on the show here are some questions they sent a telegram saying come to london do it yourself so i came to london never been to a big city we didn't even have a zebra crossing and fish guard so it was huge 
ended up in broadcasting house waiting for her did the interview and it was great but i was really scared and the the radio dj was a bit of a manipulative twat but i guess that's his job and then she signed all my records and it was wonderful and blah 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 and after that and i i got to know her after that took her for lunch we used to speak on the phone stuff like that so lovely lovely woman after that when i left broadcasting house and it was dark it's like oh my god where am i how am I going to get home? I'm scared. The Welsh are right. Someone's going to rape me. And I had all my... <laughs> so I walked and I walked and my bladder got more and more full and I got more and more desperate. And it was like, fuck it. Found a phone box. Oh, you didn't. <laughs> and I thought, I know the police are going to find me, but at least I can say, I'm lost. Take me home to my mummy. <laughs> and that was my first experience of London alone. You, you actually went in the phone box. I peed in the phone you box. In the phone I box. had to. You suddenly dropped like a stone <laughs> in my estimation. Here I was. <laughs> I mean, we're in the size of a phone box now. Oh, but my blood is under control. You're safe. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Once again, we are at this point in the conversation with my guest, uh, Kenny, where I asked my guest to tell our beautiful listening public one or two wonderful places in London that are personal to the guests. So what have you got for us today, Kenny? I feel a bit sheepish as if I'm betraying somewhere sacred. In Trent Park, there's a lost hidden play, part of the park that's called Camelot Moat. Oh. And we're back at the Knights of the Round Table, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a friend of mine actually wrote a book about it. His name's Chris Street. So check out the book and you'll really get to understand uh -huh. the history of this place. But crossing, so it's actually a round piece of water. There's an island in the middle. And before crossing into Camelot Moat, I think they might call it Camlet, C-A-M-L-E-T. Yeah, because there's a Camelot Way Road not far exactly, from there. Yes. Exactly. But if before you cross onto the island, you stop and you take a breath and you consciously walk across, it is magical. And if you are present enough to notice, because people write notes and hang things and do things, but there's something about that hidden part that is so absolutely magical. That's lovely. And I remember being there in the middle of the night once, and it was misty and mysterious with a couple of friends. You know, I, I love nature. And out of nowhere, there's this guy, a raver, and he was like some pixie, where have you showed up from? And we started chatting, and in, in the end, he said, look, I feel like I can show you something that I don't show a lot of people. Okay. And of all things... Was that time to panic? It, it, do you know, I did after he did, because... Uh -huh. He took off a contact lens and showed me his mangy eye, which Ooh. was really weird looking. That's a weird thing to do. I'm not sure he actually <laughs> existed. I know. But weird things happen. There are yeah. other times where I've seen people doing druid ceremonies, all dressed up and things In like that. In Park? Yeah, at okay. Camelot Moat. Uh. It's an amazing place, steeped with history. That's bizarre. And yeah. It's, it's a beautiful place. Trent Park, I know very well, because my yeah. wife is from Southgate. Oh, really? We used to spend, you know, many a day bunking off school <laughs> hanging out around trent park and they uh, today they've also got in trent park um the, go eight there's go eight the zip wire yeah. thing, which is where i did my back in five years ago oh, and no. that's another story but but yeah i don't know that moat that sounds lovely people say that they've been there since they were kids and they've never no found idea it. about that it's a really magical place perfect the other one is i once had an office at royal victoria dock 
and there's a walk so it's on the dlr and i think these days you can catch i, I love the dlr anyway yeah especially sitting in the front it's descending fun, to be the driver yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you can catch that cable car thing but from royal victoria dock it's like walk along the dock there's a beach there now or at least the last time i uh -huh. went and a brilliant thai restaurant but walk along the dock past the cranes and then either catch the lift or go up to the bridge the view from that bridge off london is absolutely phenomenal and very very few people know of this view or the area it's just like for pictures and things but a beach and the water like mm. this and you know i used to time it with clients because you know it's like okay they don't need a full session they need a quick walk and to get something off their chest and i would know the right clients to choose where we meet by the time we're at the bottom of the stairs we're in the nub of it by the time we're at the top of the bridge they're ready to cry they've done their crying they've probably thrown their keys or something into the water by the time i take them to the station job done and i go back <laughs> <laughs> it's a short walk but there's again it's um it's timeless yeah. the old buildings and the brickwork the modern architecture the water it's um, Royal Victoria Dock and crossing the bridge and the other side of the bridge is the O2 Center. But this side, it's like the land that time forgot. Wonderful. It's the hidden nooks and crannies like this cabin Brilliant. that I love. Yes. Well, this is what I love about London because having done this podcast now, I mean, we're well into like 75 odd guests. I think in all that time, I think we've had one or two people say the same same place yeah Every, everyone comes up with different different places really yeah and it's amazing wow and that's uh we're, i'm gonna build up um what do you call it compendium of people's guests favorite places nice yeah sounds good well as i said i know you're strapped for time and we've nearly gone an hour now which is which is great i mean great. We, we could talk for hours and hours i'm sure you've got I've so many this. stories i've really enjoyed it as well i've really can enjoyed you just this. tell people how they can find you whether it be on social media whether by direct email or your website the various means of getting in touch with you or finding out more so about you. for me i don't know my social media handles oh, no. but if you go to the manwhisperer.co.uk which is my professional website then there are links and things there or mensgroups.co.uk for the men's groups and you will often find me in the kitchen at Hello parties, parties. <laughs> <laughs> sad <laughs> 55 and i think i'm coming alive uh, yeah but i'm really what, what's the year of your birth 64 i'm a Snap. dragon are you a dragon too i'm a dragon too wow God, what month? not another season. i'm in august ah oh, no no that's where it fits in may i'm may you're so old I, <laughs> <laughs> you're such a kid <laughs> get out of here <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure to uh have you on the podcast today same you're doing I've loved it you're doing fantastic work thank um, you really admire from your background it hasn't held you back. It's had the complete opposite effect. And you're yeah. taking that and turning other people's lives around, which is just just amazing. So well done. Congratulations on all the great stuff you do. I hope that charitable status is just around the corner as well. I hope so, yeah. because my business can't afford to be a charity for the men's groups anymore. Right. And also, I like to pass things on. Mm. Since turning 50, it's like everything I've got, I need to pass it on. Um, and it's not like I intend to die very soon. I certainly hope I die before my wife. But <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, it's not about me. I don't need a following. I don't need to be a star. I need a world that will 
love more, share more, listen more. Mm. So fuck it, I'll make it. Yeah, well, you're certainly leaving a London legacy. So thank, <laughs> thank you ever so much. Thank you. I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you. And the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you'll continue to support what we're doing here. I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.